Hope everyone's doing well. It's great to see that video. It seems like Love Taylor's is about six years ago now, but it's just a few weeks ago we were able to gather a, a morning, if you remember, that was uh, rainy and windy and pretty cold, but the Lord still had great plans for us as we gathered here in this place and went out. So just really thankful again, as we talked about even last week, looking from the book of Acts of how we are to not only love God, but we're to serve one another and serve our community. So thankful for everyone that came out, for the leadership, Kathy and others that led strong this year as always with Love Taylors. And I'm already looking forward to next year. In fact, I put my shirt up because I've been to three Love Taylors now and I have three Love Taylors shirts and I can't find the first two. So I put my shirt up to where I'll know where it is next year. So I'm excited already, excited, thinking ahead. Acts chapter 12, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking in verses 1 through 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, uh, an important passage, I believe, here in the midst of the book, really at the center of the book of Acts and strategically placed here to give the church confidence in the God that they serve. I make no secret that my favorite biographies to read are missionary biographies. I love to read about those who go and take the gospel to other places, their heart for the lost and the need of the gospel, all of those things. I also love how they go with a firm belief Quite often, especially uh, as, as you read their stories, they go with a firm belief that their lives are in God's hands. The questions always come up as to uh, what will happen if, or is it dangerous there, or what may go on here. In every way as they go, they go with this belief that their lives are in God's hands. And in God's hands, that's the best place for them to be. In fact, there's no better place for them to be than in God's hands. As our beloved Lottie Moon wrote in her Bible, a quote that's not, uh, not didn't start with her. I think you can trace it back to at least to John Wesley, maybe even before then. But the quote rings true. As she writes, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. I am immortal until my work is done. And so as we look to this chapter today, I think we see a glimpse of what it means to, to live out this conviction, this conviction that we're in God's hands and we're immortal until our work on earth is done. What does it mean to live out this conviction as a people and as a church? And so this morning as we look to Acts chapter 12, I want to read this passage, 24 verses here. It's got a, a great story in it as well. So we're just going to kind of read through it and then we'll look at just two simple points this morning. It says in Acts chapter 12, picking up at the same time as we left off there in chapter 11. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, the Jewish all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and all and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the, the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God, and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the truth of your word as we gather in this story that it tells that brings confidence to us as believers that you are in control and nothing can stop your word. And so today, as we gather in this place, Father, may that be the, the conviction that we hold fast to. May that be our heart and our desire that, God, you are in control and nothing can stop your word. And may the confidence that we have from your word, Father, bleed over into a life lived out for your glory, knowing that whatever you have for us, whatever you, wherever you may lead us, Father, that you go before us, you are with us, and you care for us, and that our life in you has purpose to bring you glory. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This chapter, Acts 12, is really about heriting God, basically. It's about heriting God. Uh, there's some other people involved. You have James, you have Peter, you have the church there as they are praying. You have some other people involved. But really, it's an attempt of Herod to show or prove his own glory over against God's glory. It's an attempt of Herod to lift up his word over against God's word. In this way, Herod wants to show himself powerful, to show himself great. And so simply today, I want to give us two points as we look to this passage. The first one is this. If you oppose God and his word, you will lose. If you oppose God and his word, you will lose. It starts out here in chapter 12, about that time. Now, if we go back, this places us in the context of what happened at the end of chapter 11. If you remember, at the end of chapter 11, you have a famine that has been prophesied by this one, and this famine's gonna come to Judea. So they're in Antioch, they're far north in Syria, and to the church they come and say there's gonna be a famine in Judea, and so much so that the church in Antioch prays and they decide to, to take up offerings and, and send it to the church in Judea through the, through the elders of the church, Paul and Barnabas. They'll send it there. And so this is in the midst of that famine. That's why you'll see here a little bit later how, how when Herod goes to Caesarea, Tyre and Sidon come because they need food. And Herod has food that they can get and they know their life depends on it. And so they're in the midst of of this famine, and, and it brings up this man quickly, Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa I. Now, if you're putting him in, all of these Herods are somewhat related in the New Testament. You have Herod Agrippa I in our passage. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was king whenever Jesus was born. He's the one that ordered all of those who were two and under to be put to death. He's the one that felt threatened by the presence and coming of Christ. But not only that, you have this Herod that we have in our passage, chapter 12. You'll have Herod the Tetrarch as well. Herod the Tetrarch. This is the nephew. In chapter 12, this is the nephew of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and killed. And so you see the history of the Herods. There's been this history where they are against or opposing the church, opposing Christ, opposing the teachings of him being the Messiah. You had it in, in the early, his birth with Herod the Great. You had it with Herod the Tetrarch going against the teachings of John the Baptist. And now you have Herod the King, one who would be very familiar with the disciples, with their teaching, with Jesus and all that has happened that has gone on. Herod the King was given this title of king by the emperor Claudius. Claudius was an emperor of Rome who desired peace more than anything else. And so using that desire, Herod the king comes along and, and, and makes a statement that his, he is actually Jewish, which is different some, than the other Herods. He's actually a Jew because, because his other grandfather had married a Jewish woman and that made him legally a Jew. So Claudius sees Herod the, the king as an opportunity to bring peace there in Jerusalem. So he uses his Jewishness, if you will, to gain power and position, not 
for spiritual natures, but for political natures. So Herod, claiming this, his, this heritage, is wanting to please and bring peace to the Jews. He's power hungry. He's looking for it. And so in what way could he ultimately bring peace? He decides this best way to do this is to look at the enemy of the Jews and put them to death or put them on trial. And here, the church that has continued to grow is still seemingly the enemy of those who were Jewish, especially as we see a shift in the church. Because if you remember, back at the end of, of chapter 11 or in the middle of chapter 11, the church had decided that it was time for the Gentiles to hear the gospel and believe. And so now this has even raised a raucous among the Jews. They're even bringing the Gentiles into the temple. And we'll see this raised up. So Herod the king, Herod Agrippa I, is going to decide it's time to persecute the church again. And this time, probably feeling him on, his own self and his importance and his power, he's going to succeed in ways that the Jews weren't able to succeed. Because if you remember back in the early part of the book of Acts, you have the leadership, the chief priests, Caiaphas and others, who threw Peter and John in jail, who threatened them, but they could not stop them. Even when it gets to Stephen, who's stoned, the, the gospel continues. And so now, Herod the Great wants to make sure, in his power-hungry position, in his desire to earn favor with Rome and with the Jews and everyone else, he wants to make sure that he is seen as the most powerful one. He's going to put an end to this. He's going to put an end to this. His motivation for persecution was to draw the favor of the Jews. And so he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now many would argue that in this case, several members of the church, this young church in Jerusalem, were killed. And the one that was killed that everyone would know comes next to us. For he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This goes to Herod's greatest desire. His greatest desire is for his own exaltation. His greatest desire is for his own glory. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 12. He says, the glory of God has been seen, yet men love the glory that comes from other men rather than the glory that comes from God. And when they pursue after the glory that comes from other men, then, then surely destruction will come. So wanting the praise of the Jews... This led Herod, wanting the glory to come to himself from them, this led Herod to oppose Christianity, to oppose the gospel, to oppose the leadership. Now, there are many, many reasons why people oppose Christianity. But at the heart of everyone, of those reasons, is their own selfishness. Really, to be honest, it's, it's that way. The reason why you would oppose Christianity is because Christianity is saying that you can't save yourself. Christianity is saying there's, there's something that you cannot do. And so the opposition comes to that to say, wait a minute, who, you're telling me I cannot accomplish something. I cannot save myself. And, and I don't want to hear that. I don't want to believe that. You're telling me there's a God who's in control and he has authority over me and I've got to submit to him? No way. At the very heart of rejection of Christianity is selfish desire. Self-exaltation, if you will. 
seeking after the glory that comes from men, not the glory that comes from God. So to show his power and to exalt himself, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And this was a major blow, one that the leadership of the Jews weren't able to do and haven't been able to pull off. He's killing one of the disciples. Not only one of the disciples, this was James, the brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee. Stephen before had been stoned, but he was not a disciple or an apostle. He was a deacon that had been raised up in the church. But now, now this is one of the sons of thunder, as Jesus called him. This is one of the, 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 the inner three. Peter was present with Jesus at his most intimate moments throughout the text. He was there when, when he kicked everybody else and, and, and raised up Jairus' daughter from the dead. James was present whenever, whenever Jesus said, you come with me. And he looked at Peter, James, and John and took them to the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and Jesus showed himself in all of his glorious future splendor. James was there. It was James along with John and Peter that would be taken into that inner circle on the night Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, going deeper with him in prayer. James was a part of that inner circle that Jesus had of his disciples. It was James who had ambition and he came to Jesus and he said, I want to sit at your right hand. Let me sit there. He even had his mom come and asked. So that may show James is a little bit of a sissy, but he had his mom come. He's trying to use everything he can say, I want to sit at the right hand. Let my brother sit on the other. And Jesus looked at him and said, you do not know what you're asking. You do not know what you're asking. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what it takes to sit down at my right hand. But then Jesus says to him, one of you will know. Almost predicting the way James would die. Surely Jesus was at that time said, you will taste it and you will see. It's interesting. This is the only recorded death of one of the 12 disciples in the scriptures. It's the only recorded death here. Herod the Great pulled it off. He opposed him. He wanted the glory that comes to his name and to himself from the Jews. And so he killed one of the disciples. To prove I'm, what I'm saying, verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when he saw that it brought him glory, when he saw that it exalted himself, when it saw that it pleased the Jews, all for the glory of men, opposing Christianity, he says, let's go after the big fish then. Bring Peter in. And he arrests Peter. Offer the glory of men. The opposition of Christianity. The opposition of faith. Because faith is God exalting. Faith is God lifting, is lifting up God's name and his glory. Glory seeking as Herod has it is self-exalting. So for his own glory, he arrests Peter. As one pastor has said, if you are seeking the praise of men, then you are on a collision course with God. If you're seeking the glory that comes from one another, you're on a collision course with God. 
If we can move forward in this passage, we'll see what happens with Herod. Look down at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He'd gone up to Caesarea. He's showing his power and his glory. And he was angry with Tyre and Sidon. So he had withheld. You you see his, his arrogance and his pride. Even after Peter will be released, and we'll come back to that in a second. Even after Peter will be released, you see him exerting his power by killing all of those who were responsible to watch over him. He exerts it. He holds the power of life and death seemingly in his hands. And so he is letting his people know this. So Tyre and Sidon, he's withholding, he's withholding food from them so for them to survive. So they have to come and beg for their life from Herod. And Herod loves this. He's the most important. He's the most powerful. He's the great. He's the glorious. He loves this. And so they come and they beg for life from him. And it tells us that he put on his his fancy robe as he has this appointed day. He put on his royal robes and he took a seat on the throne and he made a speech. And when he made the speech, the people proclaimed it's the voice of God. Herod was in the spot he wanted to be. The Jewish historian Josephus, who writes around this same time, says of this time, uh, confirming exactly this event in this place, he says that, that the robe that, that Herod wore was made holy of silver and was so wonderful and so bright, people could not stare at him in the morning sun. His robe was entirely made of silver thread, so it shined and his glory was seen. And the people said, this is a God, not a man. Herod had himself in that position, but it would have served Herod well to have read some of the ancient Jewish texts, right? It would have served him well to learn of those who believed they were a God over and opposed the one true and living God. It would have served him well to learn of Pharaoh who had all of the gods of Egypt systematically destroyed through the 10 plagues and lost everything he had there because he opposed God. It would have been good for him to to read about Nebuchadnezzar who, who wanted the people to worship him. He was the one worthy of worship. And before long, Nebuchadnezzar was acting like a cow and eating grass in the middle of the field because God humbled him. Or it would have been good for him to hear of Jehoiakim who was ruling and reigning in Jerusalem at the time that the Babylonian captivity came in. And though he was warned, you continually think you are greater and you continually think you are better and you do not repent and turn to God, then you will lose it all. And he lost it all. All throughout the scriptures, we see of those who think that they are better. They think that they're more powerful. They want to stand in opposition to the one true and living God. And continually, over and over again, they lose. So it is with anyone who in their pride seeks to exalt themselves over the one true and living God. And so surely even as I, I stand here today, we think, about, we think about those kings who think they're great. But, but what about us? Maybe Herod has some reason to think he's great. I mean, he holds people's lives in his hands. With one word, he can condemn them to death. With, with one word, he can withhold food from them and provide their needs. With one word, he can put James, the powerful James, to death with the sword. With one word, he can do, surely he should think it. But what about all of us who seek to exalt ourselves in our own pride over against a God? If if they're in a 
collision course with God, most surely we are. For the scripture teaches us one thing rather clearly. God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. This all goes. This goes for all who follow God's word. The height of arrogance is to believe that you don't need God. The height of arrogance is to believe that you're smarter than he is. The height of arrogance is to believe that you know better than God does. And so as he gives us his word, the height of arrogance is for us to uh, reject it and say, I know more. I'm smarter. And at the heart of every sin is that belief that you know better than God. There's nothing more proud and arrogant than that. And all those who oppose God are arrogant and proud, and you're on a collision course that you will not win. You will not win. Anyone who denies his word and his authority in your life is on this collision course. You will not win it. So don't oppose him becomes the very point of this text. Don't oppose him, follow him. Don't oppose God, follow God. The very text is an example of this itself because what we'll see next is this, this second point. If you oppose God, you will lose. If you follow God with your life, you will win. I love that idea of losing and winning because it simplifies things. We know what that is, right? It simplifies things. And it may not always seem this way. When I say, if you follow Jesus, if you follow God with your life, you will win. It may not seem like this. We've already discussed what happened with James. We see here at the end of verse 5, Peter is thrown in prison. But the story that follows here is a good one. For we have Peter in prison. Not the first time for Peter. He's he's. Been in prison before. In fact, I find it interesting that Peter is found sleeping soundly. Y'all know what it means to sleep soundly with a good, clean conscience. Peter is thrown in jail, not worried seemingly about a lot. He's sleeping soundly, but that does not change the fact that he is in maximum security prison. Just like they tried to do with Jesus when they sent soldiers to guard the door and put the big rock over that tomb so as to stop it. They're trying to stop this as well. For he knows during the season it wouldn't be right as as Herod is trying to please the Jews to bring him out during the time of unleavened bread or Passover. So let's wait a little while. We'll bring him out then. But if we're going to wait, we got to make sure we keep him until that time. So verse 4 tells us four squads of soldiers were sent to arrest Peter, they may have heard back in the day, not to say that that's crazy, they may have heard about Peter, how good he is with the sword slicing off a brother's ear. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But four squads of soldiers are sent to arrest Peter. It says that he puts two soldiers on either side of him at all times. He's bound not with one chain, but with two chains. He's bound there in between two soldiers. And not only do you have that, there are guards guarding the door. So you got four squads sent to watch over him. You got two soldiers on either side of him. You got two chains wrapping him up, tying him down. And you got centuries and you got guards at the doors. Here, Peter is securely fastened away, right? He is in prison, maximum security. And everybody's wondering. 
Everybody's assuming he's going to suffer the same fate as James. Herod the king is great. And his word makes things happen. And just as James was killed, Peter will be killed. And so the church tells us praise in verse 5. Kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Earnest prayer. I do believe there's something different than earnest prayer. I do believe in times, just as Jesus said, that, that, that people stand on the street corner and just pile words up on top of themselves. They just put phrase after phrase and we check off the box of, of prayer. And some of you may be guilty of that. I myself am guilty of that. Whenever I know in the morning I need to pray and so I just give lip service to this time and just say, Lord, watch over me, take care of me, help me today. And I step out and, and in some way I don't believe that is earnest prayer. You know what earnest prayer is? Prayer, earnest prayer, is when you pray as if your life actually depends on the answer that you get from God. Have you ever been in that place? Not just your life, or the life but the life of your friend where, where you know my only help is right here. The only thing I can look to is, is this, God. If you don't help me, I've got nothing. Earnest prayer comes from a heart that knows apart from God, I've got nothing here. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. If he doesn't help me, I've got nothing. And so here they know it's over if God doesn't intercede. It's over if God doesn't do something. So corporately united, they get together in this special season of earnest prayer, begging God to do something. But Peter's fate was seemingly set. There's no possibility of escape they're helpless, so they look to God if we can't do anything about this. They're hopeless because they look at the situation, seeing Herod's power, seeing his position, seeing how Peter is in prison and there's nothing else to do. They're helpless and they're hopeless. In terrible situations, in terrible situations, we often feel the same way, right? Defeated, helpless, and hopeless. But God... And that's the heart of our passage again. We see the but God here in this passage as well. Peter sound asleep. Look at verse 7. Peter sound asleep. An angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him, said, get up. Peter said, all right, chains fell off. He got up, get dressed. All right, I'll do it. Get your cloak around me. We're heading out. Don't leave anything behind. Let's go. He follows him out. Peter thinks he's dreaming, but as he's walking out, no, none of the, the centuries or guards are waking up. He even steps up, and there in this passage is invented the first automatic door. Y'all heard how that works. I used to believe that I had the power for the automatic door in my finger because my granddad told me, y'all know what I mean? Just point the finger, that thing opens. Here we see the first one. He walks up and the door opens up on his own as if to say, Peter, you're not getting out by your strength or your power, but God is in control here. And he opens up everything. Peter is sound asleep. And then woken up as the light enters in, as the angel leads him out. As he's led out, he finds on the street, he lets him, gets him free. And verse 11 tells us, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
it's interesting here. Prayer is happening with the church. But do you see how so many people doubt it? I don't want to judge them for this because I think I would too. I mean, Peter's even questioning is, this can't be real. This has to be a dream. He can't really be taking me out. And then look at how Peter says it. The Jewish people weren't expecting this. They're not expecting God to work. They're not expecting God to move, but he moves. But when you get to the next passage, even the church who's praying says, no way. Not a chance. They send this little girl named Rhoda. She was later on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Some of y'all older ones will appreciate that. They send her all the way and said, go to the gate. And there, Rhoda meets him and says, hey, Peter's out here. They have been earnestly praying for Peter to be delivered. And now he's standing at the gate. And they're like, no way. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I believe, though, it's right for us to be praying for stuff that if it happens, we still cannot believe God's glory in it, right? Pray for something that's so great that when you see it, when you see it happen, your response will be no way because only, only God can bring this about. And there they finally let him in. And he says, motioning with his hands as the excitement's in the room, y'all be quiet. Let me tell you how the Lord brought me out of prison. Let me tell you how the Lord brought me out of prison. Isn't it interesting here? It tells us about James. One verse, James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword. He didn't lay into it. Luke doesn't give us any description or any lessons to learn. He just says James was killed with a sword. Peter, he was delivered by the Lord. James was killed with the sword. Peter was delivered by the Lord. Both of them were in God's hands. And here, my friends, lies the comfort of those who were found in God's hands. For James, like Paul later, he learned that day to live as Christ and to die as gain. For James that day, he, he learned that, that the purpose of his life was in God's hands and God has a purpose in everything because do we think James lost? Not at all. No way. I'm telling you, if you think James got the, the cheaper end of this deal, then you don't understand the very basis of Christianity. For to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And as Paul says, it's hard for us sometimes, but Paul says, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and for me to go there would be far better. If we believe that on this day James lost and we misunderstand the reward that is waiting for the faithful that are found in Christ Jesus. If we believe this day that James lost and we misunderstand the glories of heaven for all of the trials, all of the troubles, all of the struggles here are nothing but short and momentary compared to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. You see, as the scripture tells us, Satan and his wishes are defeated in the very way through the blood of the Lamb, the testimony of the saints, and they are not afraid to die because death itself has already been conquered. The moment his life was taken here, he was there. The moment his life was taken with the sword here, he was found whole there. 
The Lord is showing this young church, and I believe through them, us today here in Acts chapter 12, that all those who oppose him, like Herod, will lose. When James was, James was killed or martyred just days before, it was not because the Lord couldn't save him. It was not because the Lord was incompetent. It was not because the Lord was weak. Because James was killed was not a testimony to the weakness of God and the power of Herod. James' life was lost because the Lord is the Lord over life and death. And our lives serve a purpose in both life and death. And James's life serves a great purpose to teach these people, to teach these people that the gospel must go forth no matter what comes. As Tertullian, the church leader, would say, the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. And that's what we see here with James. It stills their resolve. It stills their resolve to continue on. Notice something also in Peter's release. There's a picture here. Hopeless and helpless in maximum security till the light of truth shines through, as it says, shines through into the jail cell and God saves him and delivers him. Peter's testimony was, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. His testimony is, let me tell you how the Lord brought me out of prison, out of bondage and into freedom. My friends, I think what we see here in this passage with Peter is a picture of all of us and all of our salvations if we've come to Christ, right? Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer, we, we sung this hymn on Easter. Maybe it was the first time you had heard it, but the hymn is simply, And Can It Be?, Wesley, drawing attention back to this passage, has that third verse talking about his own salvation when he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Here, Charles Wesley draws attention to exactly what happens to Peter. Peter is saved in a hopeless and helpless situation by the power of a glorious and mighty God. He was brought to freedom out of maximum security. The question for us then is, do we know this same freedom that Peter has? We can. Through the death of Jesus the fate of James is coming to us all because we understand that death is coming to us all. But if we know the victory, the victory that's been won through the power of the cross, then we face life and we face death with the same understanding, not me, but Christ. Not I, but him. Paul says it in Acts chapter 20 when he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not count my life of any value or precious at all, only that I may live for the glory of God and his gospel. That's it. That's my purpose, Paul says. Why? Because he's been purchased. Because Paul was in prison. 
not bound in some physical prison, although he spent time there. He was in the prison of sin and death, and it was maximum security. He had no way out. He was hopeless and he was helpless, but God saved him and pulled him out. He knocked the chains off. He opened the door. He made the way. He made it all through his son, Jesus Christ. He found that freedom there. And so Peter is saying, my life is in God's hands. James is saying, my life is in God's hands. And sometimes that life will be taken and sometimes we'll be freed. But ultimately, all of it will be for the glory of God. And for his name, not our own. My favorite missionary... Mention that. A missionary quote is from a guy named John G. Patton, named as my kid after him. John G. Patton wanted to go to the New Hebrides. The last missionaries that went to the New Hebrides were eaten by cannibals there, beaten and eaten. And so his church in Scotland said, you can't go there, pastor. His church loved him. And in their love for him, they said, we, you can't go. If you go, you too will be eaten by cannibals. We don't want you to be eaten by cannibals. And John G. Patton stepped up and says, if I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. In other words, whatever the case may be, my life is in God's hands. I'm going to die one day. And the only thing I want to say when I die is to God be the glory with every ounce and being of my life. It's interesting that Patton said, I'll either be eaten by cannibals or worms. What difference does it make? When we read in our passage of what happened to Herod, the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And breathed his last. Anyone who opposes God is on a collision course with him. But anyone who calls on his name and follows him finds life and joy and satisfaction even in death finds life and joy and satisfaction. This lesson for the early church was clear. You're going to go out, many people. In fact, the very next chapter is the sending of the first missionaries. You're going to go out and many people will oppose you. Many people will stand against you. But you need to know that the God who holds life and death in his hands is for you. And your purpose is found in proclaiming his name for his glory. The very heart of this passage is verse 24. And the beauty by which Luke puts this together. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory. He was eaten by worms, breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. In James's death, in Peter's freedom, the word of God increased and was multiplied. This, my friends, is the point of this passage. Encouragement is found. Encouragement is found in the fact that no one can stand against our God. 
And all those who are found in him find freedom and life there. Life is full of winners and losers. Those who win are found in Christ Jesus. Those who lose oppose him. Please, by all means, be on the winning side. Understand the power of Christ, his life and his purpose for you. Follow him and find the freedom that he gives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for all that you have done for us in him. And so God, today I pray that we only know winners here, that no one would be so foolish like Herod to oppose you. No one would be so arrogant, Father, to, to stand against you. But God, in, in our in our lives, Father, help us to see that Christ Jesus is Savior, that we are in prison until he sets us free, that, God, victory is found over death, victory is found over sin, all because of Christ Jesus. So, Father, let us not oppose him but love him. Let us not exalt ourselves but exalt Christ. Work even now in hearts and lives, Father, to say Jesus is everything. All of this we ask in his name we pray. Amen. Today is the day you need to respond or you need prayer. We have pastors and leaders standing in the back. We would love, we would love for you to join us and, 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 and speak with them to pray. And if today's the day your eye has diffused that quickening ray, as Charles Wesley says, and you need to know that freedom that can only be found in Christ, we would love to speak with you and pray with you. Please step to them. Let's stand together and sing.